you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Psalms, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. This morning we will be taking a break from our exposition of the book of Mark to address a rather sensitive subject, but one which has been prominent in the news in recent months. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. The scriptures read, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, this morning we ask, O God, that you would once again open the eyes of our heart that we might see great and wonderful things from thy law. We pray, O Father, that we might submit to your word, that, Father, your word would illumine our minds, that your spirit would grant to us understanding, that, Father, you would help us to embrace the truth that your word declares. For your word is a lamp unto our path, a light unto our feet. We give you thanks, God. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Well, with the presidential campaigns in full throttle and a number of states tightening their laws related to this very subject of abortion, the issue has risen to the forefront this nation in recent months. Sadly, however, in the latest NBC News Wall Street Journal poll, quote, shows a solid majority of Americans believe abortion should be completely or mostly legal. The 56% saying holding those views in this poll is a record high for the survey in the second consecutive NBC Wall Street Journal poll where the group has been above 50%, unquote. Abortion is a sensitive subject, and times are changing in our country. Hundreds of thousands of abortions happen in the United States. Centers for Disease Control states that a total of 638,169 abortions were reported to the CDC in 2015 from 49 reporting areas. 
According to abort73.com, however, which garners data from two sources, not only the CDC, but also from a survey that is given every three years, cites that 913,000 abortions were committed in 2015. Worldwide, there is no empirical data for the number of abortions worldwide. There is a statistical model using some information from the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the Guttmacher Institute, the Center for Reproductive Rights, estimating that the total number of abortions from 2010 to 2014 were over 50 million children annually. Each year, over 50 million children estimated aborted every year. According to the UN report, only nine countries in the world have a higher reported abortion rate than the US. Maybe 10, probably, with China being one that doesn't report accurately under reporting. In 20, 20, 2004, the Guttmacher Institute, they surveyed 1,209 post-abortive women from nine different abortion clinics across the country. Of those surveyed, 957 provided a main reason for why they chose abortion. A quarter of them engaged in abortion simply because they were not ready for a child. And 23% said they simply couldn't afford having a baby. And another 20% said they were simply done having children. Those are the prominent reasons for why women had abortions. Abortion is not new. It is not something that is a modern phenomenon. In ancient history, Plato and Aristotle recommended abortion as a way to limit family growth. Abortion in ancient history was used as a means to hide illicit sex, just as it is today. Some women did it in the ancient world to maintain their sex appeal. Abortion was done in various ways in the ancient days, some by injecting something into the womb in order to kill the child, some found poisons that they could consume or drink that would kill the child within the womb. Pagan cultures accepted abortion, but Jews rejected it. It was accepted among those who were Gentiles in fact, you remember the night in which Jesus was arrested and put on trial. The Bible tells us in John 18, 28, that the Jews, when they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, it says, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Remember that? When Jesus, in the night in which he faced his mock trial in which a travesty of justice occurred, they brought him. They brought him from Caiaphas, who was a high priest, but they didn't enter into Pilate's praetorium. Why? Because they were afraid of being defiled. Why? Because there was a prevailing Jewish belief that Gentiles disposed of stillborn or aborted babies by throwing them down into the drain. And the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish laws dealing with nearly every subject imaginable, 
declared Gentile homes to be unclean. In other words, Jesus would enter in to talk with Pilate, but the Jews stayed outside. Why? Because they wanted to be clean, undefiled, because if they stepped into a Gentile home, they might touch something that was Gentile because there would be a stillborn or aborted child that likely would have been cast into the drains, so they believed. Jews rejected abortion, though. Jews rejected abortion because it violated two, the two greatest commandments, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you aborted a child, you would be destroying a person made in the image of God, and that child in the womb also was considered your neighbor. And so Jews did not accept abortions. Gentiles did. And in the early church, as the early church began, the early church also opposed abortion. The Didache, the Didache, which is a collection of early Christian writings, explicitly said, quote, you shall not murder a child by abortion. Very explicit. Since the early church, even through the time of the Reformation, it has always been the view of the Christian church that abortion is murder, and any murder brings about the judgment of God. But this morning, I want to cover this subject not from a historical point of view, not from a political point of view, nor from a philosophical point of view. I want to cover the subject to look explicitly from a biblical point of view, from a biblical point of view. Where would you look into the Scriptures, and what does the Scriptures explicitly tell us about what God thinks of the unborn child? Because there are many arguments out there, many arguments from a medical standpoint or from a philosophical standpoint or from a historical standpoint. But for Christians, we, we base our faith on what is true from an objective source outside of ourselves, and that is the Scriptures. It is not because of our feelings about our, the subject. It is not because of our personal experiences. It is not because of science from scholarship, it is not because of polls or what the majority of people think, nor it is because of what we ourselves have been through or people that we know or experiences that we've had. It is based upon what does the Bible teach about life? What does the Bible tell us about what God thinks of the unborn? So let me lay it out to you in a simple outline with very simple principles. I'd like for you to begin turning in your Bibles because we're going to look at a number of these passages, the first being Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. The first principle, the first principle that we look at is that everything, number one, everything including all of life belongs to God. Everything, including all of life, belongs to God. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Everything, including all of life, belongs to God. It is explicitly clear. God owns your home. God owns your family. God owns your body. Even the child within the womb. Everything belongs to God. You belong to God. So the signs out there that say, my life, my choice, 
or my body, my choice, or it's my life, I can choose to do with my life whatever I want, are not true. God owns you. God owns your life. Your body, your life do not belong to you. Your person and the child within the mother belongs to God. Number one, everything, including all of life, belongs to God. Number two, God is the creator of all life, including life in the womb. God is the creator of all life, including life in the womb. Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 100, verse 3. It is he who has made you. It is he who has made us even in the womb. That is what is repeated even in Isaiah 44, verse 24. You can just write the reference down. Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. The one who formed you from the womb. It is God. And he says, in addition, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth alone. It is God who formed you out of the room. It is God who is the maker of all things. And Isaiah, again, a reference you can write down, 64 verse 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou art potter, and all of us are the work of thy hand. God is the creator of all life. God is the creator of all life. And this is an important point because the one who is the creator has the right to do what he wishes with his creation. Because he is the creator, he has authority to give life and to take life. He has authority to take life either by directly bringing about death, by means of a proxy such as through governing authorities, or in the Old Testament, by his direct command. In all of those cases, God himself possesses the right over life and death. Because he is the creator, he has the right to take life. Sometimes by taking life and bringing about death directly. Sometimes because he has instituted a governing authority, and through that governing authority, they execute justice and righteousness through capital punishment. Sometimes it is in the Old Testament by the direct command of God. When God has commanded that life be taken, God has every right to do so. Why? Because he is the creator. You and I realize that when you are the creator of something, you have inherent rights. Over in, in, the, in the corporate world, you call that intellectual property or we call it trademarking or copyright, etc. All of those things, you as a creator have inherent right to do what you wish with what you have created. In the Old Testament, God directly commanded the taking of, the, of life. In the New Testament, God has given certain rights. God has not given anyone the right today to take innocent life. He hasn't given us the right. We're not the creator. We don't have the right to take innocent life of the unborn. 
You know, some people will argue that God somehow doesn't care or does not view them, these unborn children, as people because the Old Testament passages in the Bible where there's a wiping out of the Canaanites or people groups or prophecies about women who are pregnant would be killed. Some people will argue in that vein, but God has every right because He is the creator of life and He is the sovereign God. We don't have that right. We are not the creators of life. Just as we read in the text this morning in Psalm 139, 13 to 16, it says, the psalmist says, for you were the one who formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Psalm 139, 13. The psalmist says, I give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, as yet there was not one of them. The psalmist clearly lays out the very fact that each and every child in the womb is intricately, uniquely, and sovereignly made by God. Every characteristic of a child is uniquely made of a God. And like a master craftsman, God creates life and He makes no mistakes. When He was speaking with Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, He says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Even before Jeremiah was born, God had ordained for him his path, his calling, his calling as a prophet, his life. People from every tongue and every tribe and every nation are all intricately made uniquely made by God Himself. It is a creative act of God that is not said of animals, of plants, or anything like that, because people are uniquely created in the image of God. Animals are not created in the image of God, only people. In fact, in Psalm 8, Psalm 8, if you turn there, Psalm 8, verses 3 through 8, there's another praise to God about how much God thinks of people. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the seas, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Humans are not part of the animal kingdom. When God created man, He created man in His image. It was almost as the pinnacle of His creation, 
as God finished his creative work in the early days of creation. And man is to have dominion over the earth, and to have dominion over those who are animals. And even before birth, God has ordained the days that one would live. Dr. Jerome Lejeune, who's a professor of fundamental genetics in Paris, he writes, life has a very long history, but each individual has a very neat beginning, the moment of its conception. A material link in the molecular thread of DNA in each reproductive cell, this ribbon roughly one meter long is cut into pieces, 23, or chromosomes, as soon as the 23 paternally derived chromosomes are united through fertilization to the 23 maternal ones, the full genetic meeting necessary to express all the inborn qualities of the new individual is gathered and personal constitution takes place. At two months of age, the human being is less than a thumb length from the head to the rump. He would fit inside of a nutshell but everything is there, hands, feet, head, organs, brain. The fourth week, there is consciousness. All are in place. His heart has been beating for a month. By the second month, his fingerprints can be detected. His heart is beating 150 to 170 beats a minute to accept the fact. He writes that after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being, is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. That child in the womb has everything needed for human constitution at the moment of conception. God is the one who creates the child within the womb. Number three, God is also the creator of people with special needs. God is also the creator of people with special needs. Not only is God the creator of all life, God is the one who creates people with special needs. Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Here in this context, Moses is trying to give the Lord an excuse for not leading the people out of Egypt. The people in Egypt, the Israelites, have been in bondage underneath uh, Pharaoh. And here Moses is trying to give an excuse, and in chapter 4, verses 10, Moses says to the Lord, Lord, please, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. I can't talk, Lord. How am I going to lead your people? The Lord says in verse 11, chapter 4, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, it is the Lord who makes people who are mute or deaf. It is the Lord who makes people blind or able to see. It is the Lord who makes every individual special. Isaiah 45 write that passage down, 9 and 10 says, Woe to the one who quarrels against his maker. Woe to the one who quarrels against his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands. 
Woe to him who says to a father, what are you beginning? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? In other words, we're just clay pots. Who are we to say, what are you doing, Lord? That man has no hands. That man is blind. That man can't see. That man can't walk. Who are we to argue with God when God is the maker, the creator of all of life? It is God who sovereignly chooses to make each individual different, unique, and special. The Jews in Jesus' day didn't see it that way. When the disciples and the Lord Jesus were walking along in John chapter 9, they came across a man who was born blind. And in verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 9, they say to the Lord Jesus, his disciples say, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him this, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man who sinned that made him blind, or was it his parents who sinned and therefore he's blind? Because back in that time, as many of us may see today, people may think today, Back then, disabilities, sickness, health-related issues were seen generally as a punishment from God, as a chastisement from God, as a person who had come under the judgment of God somehow in some way. But if you were healthy, if you were wealthy, you were seen as a person under God's favor. They had a health, wealth, prosperity, gospel mentality back then as well. So they said, who, who sinned? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus answered in chapter 9 of John, verse 3. Jesus answered, it was neither this man who sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was blind because God was going to use this man to bring glory to himself. And Jesus healed this man. You know, one of the reasons why abortion is often chosen or argued for is because of a birth defect or a disability. Sometimes parents are told that a child will not live long after birth, so the recommendation is that child would be aborted. But those who fail, who recommend or choose abortion, fail to realize that God has a purpose, that God wove and made that child unique in whatever aspect he chose to. They fail to realize that children with disabilities or challenges or special needs, children who even will not live long after birth, have a purpose in life. We may not know that purpose, but God has a plan for every life. And sometimes the doctors are wrong. I've had parents who come to me to tell me during their pregnancy that they've been told their child will have a disability or a birth defect and that they ought to abort their child. But they refused to abort the child. Later on, they gave birth. That child was healthy, had no problems whatsoever. There was a woman, her name was Pam, and she moved to the Philippines with her husband, Bob, to conduct a Christian missionary outreach in 1985, and there in the Philippines, she became pregnant. While in the Philippines, though, she, she drank some contaminated water and she contracted amoebic dysentery. And the doctor who diagnosed her and was giving her painkillers 
told her that an abortion would be required because of the damage the medication she would now take would cause the fetus. Pam refused. She refused to do so. The Lord took her through that pregnancy. She gave birth to a young man named Tim, Tim Tebow, who later became the Heisman Trophy winner. God is the creator of all life. God is the creator of all life, including those who may even live a short time. One of my relatives, one of my relatives had a child, had a severe, severe birth defect. His pastor, in fact, this, uh, this man who had this child, particular chromosome, and that child went through tremendous, tremendous um, challenges, lived, I think, less than a couple of years, lived less than a couple of years, constantly at the hospital with that child, going through all sorts of pain. But God had a purpose in the life of my relative as well. God has a purpose for everyone because He uniquely creates even people with special needs. And the fact of the matter is, all of us, all of us have some degree of disability. All of us have some special need, don't we? None of us is perfect. We'd like to think that we're somehow better, but we're not. God has created each and every individual in their special, unique way. Fourthly, God views the unborn as human beings and their death that is caused by someone else as murder. God views the unborn as human beings and their death caused by someone else, intentional death caused by someone else as murder. Now, the Old Testament gives us a very vivid picture, and I want you to turn here, Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21, because it gives us a case study in the law, in the law of Moses, in which there are two individuals, and there is a child who is born. There are two individuals who are fighting, and there's a child who is born. Exodus 21, verses 22 to 24. In the giving of the law, many cases are given as examples and we can see what God thinks of the child in the womb. Exodus 21, verses 22 to 24. How God views the child in the womb. Verse 22 of Exodus 21. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, Wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So here's the scenario that is painted in the Mosaic Law. So we know what God thinks. There are two men who are fighting. They're fighting. And this pregnant woman, she intervenes, presumably the wife of one of them. She somehow steps in between them, perhaps, and she gets struck. She gets struck by one of the men in the process. We can easily imagine that, right? Two guys are fighting. She tries to break them up. She gets hit. And what happens? She gives birth. This child is born. Now, 
if there is no injury to the baby, the text says he gets fined. Pain and suffering or whatever it is, the judges decide. But if there is injury, if there is injury, it says if there is any further injury, you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This is the law of lex talionis. It is the punishment that is given. It is to say this law of lex talionis is basically stating that a punish may, punishment may match but not exceed that which the injured party has suffered. Just punishment could be demanded up to, but not in excess of an injury sustained. This was not intended for some sort of vigilantism. It was not intended, for, but it was intended that there would be equivalent, or I should say a maximum equivalent of equal retribution to be put upon people when they demanded justice. And the point of the passage is that, is this, is that in the eyes of God, the unborn child who is then born has the same rights as any other human being when justice is served. In fact, the text tells us that if the child is killed, the man who brought about that child's death could be put to death in Old Testament times. God views the unborn as a human being having the same rights as any other person according to this law that was given. God views their death caused by someone else as that of a murderer. Now, what about the case, you might argue, when the life of the mother is in danger? Is it acceptable to God somehow to kill the child in order to save the mother? It's often a sensitive subject that is broached, a question that is asked, you know, many years ago, I attended a service during Christmas. It was on Christmas Day. It was on Christmas Day at another church, and uh, up on stage, there was a husband and a wife. And the wife was pregnant with twins. And the church, I think, was praying for them because she was pregnant with twins, but she had cancer. She had cancer and needed medical treatment lest she die. But if she took that treatment, the children would inevitably be threatened, harmed, and as I understood it, possibly die. Fast forward one year. I attended Christmas service at that same church, Christmas Day, and I saw the father up on stage holding two beautiful, healthy twins. His wife had foregone treatment, gave birth to her children. Shortly thereafter, they began treatment after her giving of the birth, and she passed away. The option of putting at risk or even killing the children was never an option, not a path that they chose, because as godly parents, they chose to give up their life to save the life of their own children. As Jesus would say, what greater love has no man than this than one would lay down his life for his friends? To bring about the intentional death of a child isn't within the purview of Scripture. It's not for us to take life. We do not own life. But that brings us to our fifth point, that children are a gift from God. Not only 
Does all life belong to God? Not only is God the creator of all life, including children in the womb, not only is God the creator of people with special needs, not only does God view the unborn as human beings and their death caused by someone else as murder, intentionally, children, fifthly, are a gift of God. Psalm 127, verse 3, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Today in our self-centered culture, people have abortions primarily because they're inconvenient, because they're done having children, because they're an obstacle to personal plans, because they've come into the way of my dreams or they've become a burden to me in other ways. Do you know the Physicians Association of Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion provider in the world, released this statement, quote, abortion is a treatment for unwanted pregnancy, the second sexually transmitted disease, unquote. Unwanted pregnancy, in their view, is the second sexually transmitted disease. Children are a gift from the Lord. Whether pregnancy is planned or unplanned, whether it is an expected child or an unexpected child, whether it is a child that has come about by planned means or through what you might consider a joyous situation or not, children are a gift from God. Children are a gift from God. And when you receive a gift from someone, someone gives you a gift that has good intentions and someone who is good is right and proper to graciously receive that gift. Even more so when God grants to us a gift, do we say no? We praise God, we give God for His gift. Even if we may not see things in the same way that God sees them because of difficult circumstances, Children are a gift from God. Children are a gift from God. Sixthly, sixthly, in all of this, in all of this, all of these difficult circumstances in a congregation such as this, undoubtedly there may be somebody here who has taken part in some way in an abortion. Sixthly, God always extends grace and forgiveness to the repentant. God always extends grace and forgiveness to those who turn to Him. Sometimes the guilt is overwhelming, causing people to defend abortion, to justify their actions. But the alleviation of guilt for any sin, whether it's this or any other sin, only comes by way of turning to God, recognizing that it is not God's will, that it is sin, that it is murder, and confessing one's sin, receiving that forgiveness that only God can give, only that grace and forgiveness causes us to have that sense of relief because God has granted to us His mercy. But the Scriptures tell us in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin that is beyond the grace of God, that God and God does not want anyone to live under the perpetual guilt for the rest of their lives. For even Isaiah 43, 25 tells us, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. For my own sake, God says, I wipe out your transgressions and I will not remember your sins. The forgiveness of God is offered to anyone who would come, asking Him for 
His grace and His mercy. And only then will one find true peace and true joy. Just like the testimony of this woman who came to be baptized, not at our church, but in this particular church, what they would do is they would have the baptismal candidates come and they would write on a piece of paper a few sins, maybe things that were important to them, and they would pin those sins on the cross sort of as a symbolic gesture by which it would recognize that it is Jesus who took away the sins of people on the cross through his death. One woman who came to be baptized shared this quote, I remember my fear. In fact, it was the most fear I remember in my life. I wrote as tiny as I could on that piece of paper the word abortion. I was so scared someone would open the paper and read it and find out it was me. I wanted to get up and walk out of the auditorium during the service. The guilt and fear were that strong. When my turn came, I walked toward the cross and I pinned the paper there. I was directed to a pastor to be baptized. He looked me straight in the eyes and I thought for sure he was going to read this terrible secret I kept from everybody for so long. But instead, I felt like God was telling me, I love you. It's okay. You've been forgiven. I felt so much love for me, a terrible sinner. It's the first time I ever really felt forgiveness and unconditional love. It was unbelievable indescribable, unquote. God is a gracious and compassionate, merciful and forgiving God. No matter what we have done, whether it is that of participating in abortion, having an abortion, or whether that it is of murder, of, of using the Lord's name in vain, whatever the sin is, God's mercy, God's grace is offered to all who would come to Him, for He offers forgiveness. Everything, all of life belongs to God. God is the creator of all life, including those with special needs. And God views the unborn as those who are human beings and their death by the hands of one who would have ill intentions, that of murder. Children are a gift of God, and God offers His mercy and grace. Even as we look at this difficult subject God in His grace extends His forgiveness to all who would come to Him. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we are grateful, Father, for Your Word, for Your Word which grants to us hope. Even the hope, O oh Father, as we look into Your Word as David has expressed about his own child who died, that he would see him once again. Father, the hope that you provide in your word, the hope of forgiveness, the hope of salvation, the hope of freedom from guilt, from sin. Father, you are a gracious and compassionate God.
I pray, O oh God, that you would help us to understand clearly, Lord, to be able to see clearly in an issue that often divides our nation, but to see clearly what your word would say about the preciousness of life, life of those in the womb, the sanctity of life. And I pray, God, that we might be those who advocate for the protection of children whom you see as your own, whom you've woven in the womb. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.